All right, does anybody know the movie Dumbo, right? A lot of you guys don't know that movie because it wasn't out for a long, long time. Those of us my age and older saw that movie in theaters. Anybody know what eventually made Dumbo fly? What was it? It was the magic feather. It's exactly what it was. Uh, those crows got together who had just got through mocking this uh, elephant that was a freak. And, um, and then, did you hear what they called the mouse? Reverend Rodent. There came somebody with a tongue that wasn't going to tear down but build up. And he gave words to rebuke people who were using their tongue to tear down. And he changed their heart. And they decided to use that which was destructive in the life of this young elephant to encourage him. And they, they gave this magic feather. And what the plan was amongst these crows was to encourage the elephant that if he held this magic feather, he could fly. And then they put it in his little trunk and he held on to it. And they were going to basically get around him and help him by making him fly by all grabbing different parts of Dumbo. But as it worked out, Dumbo just needed a little bit of encouragement to believe he could. And that elephant could fly on his own. The scripture says that in the power of the tongue, there are the words of death and the words of life. And that little scene from that movie Dumbo isn't just a classic in Disney lore. It is true of specifically, I think, how young men respond to the words from their father. There are some fathers that tell their boys they're a freak, they're good for nothing, and they beat them down. And then there are others that say, no, here's a magic feather I'm going to give you. I believe in you. I believe you can fly. And it changed the elephant's life. It changed circus history. It changed the world. There's a story that uh, is true. It, was, uh, it flew around the internet. You're never really sure if these things are true, but this one is true. I just want to read it to you, and then we'll take a look at some of God's word. But it uh, relates just to the power of words of encouragement. Uh, it's a story of a, 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 a nun who taught school up in Minnesota. And uh, this is her story. She says, uh, he was in the first third grade class ever taught at St. Mary's School in Morris, Minnesota. All 34 of my students were dear to me, but Mark was one in a million. He was very neat in appearance, but had the happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that Talking without permission was not acceptable, but what impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I had to correct him for misbehaving. Thank you for correcting me, sister. I don't know what to make of it at first, but, but long before I became accustomed to hearing it, many, many times a day. One morning, my patience was grown thin, and when Mark talked once too often and then made a novice teacher's mistake, I looked at Mark and said, if you say one more word, I'm going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't 10 seconds later when Chuck blurted out, Mark's talking again. I hadn't asked any of the students to help me watch Mark, but since I stayed the punishment in front of the class, I had to act on it. I remember the scene as if it had occurred this morning. I walked to my desk, very deliberately opened my drawer and took out a roll of masking tape. Without saying a word, I proceeded to Mark's desk, tore off two pieces of tape, and made a big X with them over his mouth. I then returned to the front of the room. As I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing, he winked at me. That did it. I started laughing. The class cheered as I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, shrugged my shoulders. His first words were, thank you for correcting me, sister. At the end of the year, I was asked to teach junior high math. The years flew by. And before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. He was more handsome than ever and just as polite since he had 
to listen carefully to my instruction in the new math. He did not talk as much as in, in ninth grade as he had in third. One Friday, things just didn't feel right. We had worked hard on uh, the new concepts I was teaching all week, and I sensed that students were frowning. Frustrated with themselves and edgy with one another, I had to stop this crankiness before it got a hand. So I asked them to list the name of all the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. And I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates, and then write it down. It took them the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment, and the students left the room. Each one handed me their papers. Charlie smiled. Mark said, thank you for teaching me, sister. Have a good weekend. And that Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate sheet of paper and listed what everyone else had said about them. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list long before, uh, uh, and, and it wasn't long before the entire class was smiling. Really? I heard someone whisper. I, I never knew that anyone uh, thought that about me. I didn't know that others liked me so much. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they discussed them after class or with their parents, but it didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The class was quiet. The students now were happy the next day, and we could return to, to, to teaching. That group of students moved on. Several years later, I returned from vacation, and my parents met me at the airport. As we were driving home, mother asked me the usual questions about the trip, the weather, my experiences in general. There was a lull in the conversation, and mother gave dad a sideways glance and simply said, Dad? My father cleared his throat, as he usually did before something important. He said, uh, the Elklands called last night. Really, I said? I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. Mark was killed in Vietnam, my dad said. The funeral's tomorrow, and uh, his parents would like if you could attend. To this day, I can still point to the exact spot on I-494 where Dad told me about Mark's death. I had never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before, she wrote. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think of at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if I could only make that mouth talk again. The church was packed with Mark's friends. Chuck's sister sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Why did it have to go on, why did it always have to rain on days of funeral, I thought to myself. It was a difficult enough thing just to be at a graveside, much less in the rain. The pastor said the usual prayers and the bugler played taps and one by one, those who loved Mark took a walk by the coffin and sprinkled it with holy water. I was the last one to bless the coffin. As I stood there, one of the soldiers who acted as a pallbearer came up to me. Were you a Mark's math teacher? He asked. I nodded as I continued to stare at the coffin he goes, you know, Mark talked about you a lot. Words kind of caught me back, but after the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed over to Chuck's farmhouse for lunch, and Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. Hey, we want to show you something, his father said. Taking a wallet out of his pocket, he said, they found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the billfold, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each other's classmates had said about Mark. His mom looked at me and said, thank you so much for doing that. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates saw the interchange and started to gather around. Charlie smiled and said, I still have my list. I keep it in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck, Chuck actually asked me to put it in his wedding album. I have mine too, Marilyn said. It's in my diary. 
Then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook, took out her wallet, and showed she had her worn and frazzled list to the group. I carry with this with this, and all I carry this with me all the time, Vicky said without batting an eyelash. I think we all saved our lists. That's when I finally sat down and cried. I cried for Mark and for all his friends who would never see him again. And then she just closes with this statement. It was in Reader's Digest. The density of people in society is so thick that we forget that life will end one day. And we don't know when that one day will be. So please, tell the people you love and care for them before it's too late. Tell them before it's too late. You know, you think about that, a little third grade assignment, or ninth grade assignment, actually, in, in, this, in this case with this teacher, where she just said, just for a second, instead of being typical uh, adolescence, where you tear each other down, chop down other trees so yours can seem taller, put out others' candles so yours can seem a little brighter, why don't you just for a second anonymously write down what you think about all your other classmates as positive? And it became a life treasure for all those people. Does that tell you the power of the tongue? Does that tell you how rare it is when people use the tongue the way God intended? It is a magic feather. And with it, you can curse men and can carry, uh, you, can, uh, you, you can tear them down and burden them with stuff they've got to carry for a lifetime. And with it, you can make them fly. And God has given you the ability to have it sanctified. Um, I remember uh, the very first girl I really, really let my little heart go a flutter for. Her name was Laura Perry, 314-522-2064. And, uh, and uh, Laura, uh, just for whatever reason, man, my, my little heart just kind of was like, man, that, that, that one right there, you know? And uh, I can remember as a kid, you know, uh, I had enough wire on my teeth my freshman year that, you know, you could surround Angola with it, it felt like. And um, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, um, weighing in for football, I was the only kid in our team that when they weighed you in, they took that little block and had to move it from the hundred and slide the, 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 well, the big block and slide it from uh, 100 down to 50 and the little block and inch it back up where everybody else, it was on 100 and they inched the little block to the right. A whopping 98 pounds my freshman year. I remember how self-conscious I was. I remember uh, noticing that uh, when I looked in the mirror that uh, my face was crooked because my nose had been broke. And I remember to this day at the Kirkwood McDonald's in St. Louis, Missouri, standing there next to Laura Perry. And that girl saying to me, I think I was, I think I was in seventh grade, and she said, you got a cute nose. And I remember going home and looking at my nose, and I've never looked at it the same since. And you're like, well, bro, you ought to take a look at it again, right? <laughs> I mean, fast forward 10 years, no kidding. Uh, I'm working with troubled kids and I'm sitting there and there's a kid I'm trying to walk through some stuff and as I'm talking to him his head's kind of turning like this back and forth and I go what are you doing he goes hey man your face is crooked right he literally said it to me in the middle of being disciplined and I go my face isn't crooked my nose is broke what's wrong with you and it, and it just made me think I, I you know I know that my profile is different from both sides I know I broke my nose several times but I also know in seventh grade Laura Perry thought it was cute 
And it's amazing how words can give you life. Uh, we've all heard the phrase, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And we all know that's a lie. Every one of us has gotten whoopings from a father, but the thing that you remember probably more than anything else are the cutting words that came out of the mouth of your black raven daddy that cursed you and made you just mope off. And then maybe some of you guys are blessed enough that your dad gave you a magic feather. Maybe some of you guys right now are around godly men who encourage you day after day. The tongue has the power of death and life. And one of the things that marks you as the people of God is the way that you use it. Now I'm not talking about being quick tongue. I'm, uh, uh, like the, the young grocery clerk who was uh, working there in the produce aisle, some lady walked up and just said, hey, can I have half a head of lettuce? And he said, no, man, we, we sell full heads of lettuce. She says, I've been shopping here for a long time. Uh, I don't need a whole head of lettuce. I just need a half head of lettuce. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am. We only sell full heads of lettuce. And she said, you go tell the manager that I want a half head of lettuce. And so he said, fine. He walked around. He found his manager a couple aisles over. And he walks up and he says to her, uh, says to the manager, said, listen, man, there's some half-brained woman back over here who wants to buy, and the manager's eyes were getting bigger and bigger as he talked. He said, there's some half-brained woman over there who wants a half a head of lettuce. And then finally, he could tell that something was behind him. He turned around, he saw the woman, and he says, and this brilliant lady would like the other half. <laughs> a little bit later, the manager walks up to him and said, man, that was pretty quick thinking. That's the best I've ever seen. Where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, well, bro, I grew up in Grand Rapids. There wasn't much to do there except learn to use your tongue well. I mean, I don't know if you know much about Grand Rapids, but there ain't Grand Rapids, but there's not much there except ugly women and hockey players. And the manager's eyes got really big. He goes, my wife is from Grand Rapids. And he said, what position did she play in hockey? Tongue can get you in trouble and get you out, can it? And it can give life and it can give death. When you read the book of James, um, which is really the New Testament Proverbs, and, and I don't know if you guys have noticed, what I don't want to do here in our time together is, is just read to you the scripture that you've been reading all week. I want to just remind you of some things that will hopefully motivate you and encourage you to dive in and to, and to commit these words to heart and to bury them in your soul. But when you get to the book of James, you're, you're going to come across um, basically a New Testament Proverbs. And, and there is no topic in the book of James that is covered as much as the tongue. In fact, a verse that we use more often in the tongue probably than any other when we uh, talk to people about it, we use really completely out of context. And, and so the tongue is to be used not just to build other people up, but the tongue you've got to be careful with that you don't use it to blaspheme God. And in James chapter one, where it says that you need to be slow to speak and quick to hear, it really isn't talking about the way we interact with each other. When the scriptures say that you need to be slow to speak and quick to hear, that verse shows up right after it's talking about how we are to endure various trials. A verse is basically saying, 
You be careful before you tell God he's incompetent. You be careful before your tongue parades throughout the earth that God is unloving, unaware, unable to um, deliver on his promises before you blaspheme him because your life isn't turning out the way that you want or because trouble has come to you that you can't find a place for in your little pea brain. And James is saying, watch your tongue. Because God is good. There is no variance in him. He is not a shifting shadow. Every good and pleasant thing comes from above. And so you make sure that your life circumstance doesn't cause your tongue to blaspheme God. It is also appropriate that we um, use that verse in the way that we communicate about other people. Jesus says, be careful what you do with your tongue. I don't want to hear you saying about your brother, you fool. He says, that's murdering a brother. Somebody made in my image. Somebody that I want you to edify and build up. You be careful before you speak too quickly about another human that you say has no potential for good in them. Our tongues are to be used as ambassador's tongue to talk about the hope from a different land and the goodness of the king and the love he has for all people. James talks about how our tongue is um, ultimately the thing that will show our faith, will show who we are. It talks about how um, our tongue is the thing that really will display most quickly to others whether or not we are just people who say we believe certain things about God or whether God dwells inside of us. There's not very many Sundays that I stand up here and before I speak, I don't say, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my, my rock and my redeemer. But the truth is, every day, each of us is a teacher. And every day, every one of us goes to preaching. And every day, what comes out of our mouth declares what we think about God and how we want to teach others about him. If every one of us prayed that prayer before we responded in the midst of conflict, before we um, responded to trouble, I think people would start to see a whole lot different about the church. When the words of our mouth, because they are informed by the meditations of our heart, which are not in the counsel of the wicked or the path of sinners or the seat of scoffers, but because we delight ourselves in the law of the Lord, not just on Thursdays, but all the time, when the words of our mouth come out because we're meditating on what is right and true and lovely, the words that come out of our mouth are right and true and lovely. This doesn't mean that we're flatterers. The Bible speaks poorly of flatterers. But it means that we use our tongue faithfully. Uh, there is one person in Scripture that is probably uh, the best picture of Christ that, um, that you can find. Uh, if you are around Bible study for very long, you'll come across the uh, concept of what's called typology. Uh, typology 
is that you're going to find somebody that there are characteristics about them that hearken to a greater figure. Joseph is a type of Christ. Jesus is the anti-type of Joseph, which means uh, he is the fulfillment of some of the things that Joseph anticipated. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Uh, See if this sounds familiar. A beloved son of the blessed father who is rejected by his brothers, who is left for dead, is in fact not out of their life, but has been sovereignly put before them in a place where God will elevate him to where he can do for the brothers that rejected him uh, what they need that they might be saved in their moment of greatest peril. And what they intended for evil against this brother actually will turn out for their good. Who's that sound like? Jesus. Well, let me show you one more that's uh, really interesting. Joseph wasn't the guy I had in mind. The guy I had in mind who probably is the greatest type of Christ in uh, your Bible is found in Judges chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Judges chapter 11. In Judges 11, uh, you're going to come across the ninth judge, a guy who maybe you've never heard anybody teach on, and his name is Jephthah. Let me just read you a little bit of the story of Jephthah, and then I want to walk you through how he's a type of Christ, and then I want to show you, without reading more about it in chapter 12, something that happens. Here we go. You ready? Judges chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jephthah the Gilidite was a valiant warrior, but he was a son of a harlot. He was uh, not born of apparent nobility. And Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. Does that sound familiar? A lot like Joseph, doesn't it? Um, you shall not have an inheritance on in our father's house. So Jephthah, verse 3, fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows gathered themselves about him. Does that sound familiar? A band of no good outcasts that really were without hope until they found a gracious leader. It came about, verse 4, after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead knew that they were a bit overwhelmed, and so they went to find Jephthah. I don't know why they went to him specifically, but there was something about this man and his reputation that um, asked them, uh, that made them want to ask him to be their leader. Come and be our chief, that we might fight against the sons of Ammon. And then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, for this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and become and fight with the sons of Ammon and, because, uh, and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, I will not be your savior unless you make me your Lord. If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, he said, verse nine, the Lord gives you up to me, will I become your head? Will you acknowledge, if you trust in me to save you, will you acknowledge that I'm one worthy to be followed? This, this story goes on. You're gonna see... Um, all kinds of um, similarities to Jesus, not born of nobility, rejected by his brothers. He will not save you unless you follow him and make him your Lord. 
And he does, in fact, go on and save him. But then watch this. What happened during this little scene as you continue, you'll see that Jephthah actually uses his mouth in a way that gets him in trouble. And so every type is not a complete fulfillment of the anti-type. But you'll see many things in here that make you realize there's going to be one that will come later that will ultimately do what this guy only did in terms of a shadow. But if you turn over to, to Judges chapter 12, you'll see the story of, of um, Jephthah and his successors. And it talks now about some guys that were not a part of following Jephthah and did not walk with him and did not trust that he could deliver them and really went to work with the enemy during their early days and did not believe that he was Savior or Lord. But later it becomes obvious to them who he is. And these men then want to be identified as followers of Jephthah. Watch this. It says, um, we'll pick it up uh, in verse, uh, let's just, we'll just read right there in verse one. The men of Ephraim were summoned and they crossed to Zephon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Amnon without calling us to go on down with you? I mean, why did you go do this? We, we would have come and you just asked us to go. Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at the great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, I did call you and you did not uh, uh, you did not deliver me from their hand. You didn't want to go to battle with us. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim because they were not, in fact, with him. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim and Ogiladites. In the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh, all you need to know about this story right here is that there were men that said, hey, if you'd have just told us what was going on and there were enemies of God's people, we'd have been in. And Jephthah said, no, that's not the case. We called you, you didn't want to go to war with us. And then a little bit later, uh, these men that survived would, um, would come to a place of crossing, the fords of the Jordan. And they would want to be uh, considered part of the group that had followed appropriately. And look at how they can tell whether or not you, in fact, were an individual that was a part of the tribe that did right or a part of the tribe that did wrong. It says the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to them, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, say now Shibboleth, which means river, okay? A river is always a source of life. Say the word life to me, in effect, okay? But if they said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly, because there was something about the men of Ephraim, the way they spoke, they just couldn't quite get it out. Like, we can't roll our R's, all right, the way that uh, a true Hispanic can. Um, these men could not say Shibboleth, but they would say Sibboleth, which basically means um, cursing, not life. For he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the forge of the Jordan. And thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Um, here's the thing. You can't fake your tongue. One of the primary marks that you really know your Lord and Savior is the way you form words with your tongue. 
And it's why in the book of James, all throughout it, we are told, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but he deceives his own heart, and that man's religion is worthless. It's right after that that he says, pure and undefiled religion is to care for the widow and the orphan. But whether you say life with your tongue or death with your tongue is a sign of who your Lord and Savior is. And that is why there is so much teaching in the Proverbs about your tongue. Man, there are all kinds of little elephants in your house and in your community and in your world. And God wants you to be a blessing to them. God wants your tongue to be a magic feather but not magic, a mystery to them. Why is it that while all men curse each other and all men try and beat each other down with their words so they can be elevated, you, with your life and with your tongue, bring words of healing to my life. You bless me, you build me up, and you bring beautiful words that set me free. It's because it marks you as a man who really knows the Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that guys in this room, as we walk out of here today, would be men that speak words of life. We would be shibboleth, and not men who, even though we say we know our Lord, keep speaking words of judgment. Help us, Lord, to make people fly, not just uh, with just simple uh, words that are illusions when we're really just flatterers and trying to use our tongue to... Um, soften them up so we can get from them what, what they want, but I pray that we really just speak words of life because they're your words. Fill our hearts now with your word that our tongue would be used differently throughout the day. Thank you for these men that want to fill their heart now with truth. Most of all, Lord, with your spirit. And may your spirit guide our tongue because you are our Lord and Savior. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen.